Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an unbelieving, an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. One of the most difficult relational issues to overcome is when one person loses trust in another. In any conflict that's not resolved quickly, that's typically there. When there's trust with the other person, oftentimes a conflict can be resolved relatively quickly. But a conflict that arises where there is no trust or where there's less trust often takes much longer. Now, you might say the person who lost the trust ought to have been a more trustworthy person. If they'd been a more trustworthy person, then this problem wouldn't have happened. But that's actually not where the problem always lies, is it? If we think about the examples of this in our life, we recognize that sometimes the other person is not as untrustworthy as the first person wants to make them out to be. Oftentimes, the problem lies with the one who loses the trust in the other. They are not as trusting as they ought to be. Consider the parent who withholds something from their child for good reason, reason that the parent knows, but the child, not understanding those things, accuses the parent 
right? You all have had that, uh, as parents, you've all had that situation where you say, okay, well, uh, because I know that this will be better for you, I am going to now punish you. I'm going to take away this thing from you in order to teach you a lesson that will actually be better for you in the future. And your kids respond, you hate me. You don't want me to have any fun. You're just mean. And as parents, you just, you just take it, right? Because you know you love your kid. And you know it is better for them. Or consider a, a friend who confronts you out of love, confronts something they see that's a problem, that could become a problem in your life. But even though that friend for years has constantly cared for you, they've been there for you, they've done a million things to show you how much they love you and how much they care about you, and yet in that moment you don't want that thing to be confronted, and so how do you respond? You doubt them. You doubt their intentions. You begin to be suspicious that they have some sort of ill motive, some other motive in this situation, right? Rather than looking at their long track record and saying, you know, it could be that they have some other motive, but all of the history that I have with this person tells me, all of it tells me that that they're doing this for the right reason. Even if I think they're wrong, I should still trust them. Or consider a biblical example. After Moses led the people out of Egypt, one of the first challenges came when they were pinned down between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. Do you remember the story? But do you remember that the reason why they were there in the first place? Do you remember why they were stuck between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. They responded to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you brought us here? They saw 10 plagues. They saw God uh, change, force Pharaoh to let them out. They saw the people of Egypt give them all of their gold and riches just to get them to leave. They saw a cloud and a pillar of fire right then and there as they were saying this. And yet they called out, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? Ultimately, this was not a lack of trust in Moses. It was a lack of trust in God. Now, we don't always execute relationships perfectly, do we? We don't always understand other people's actions perfectly either, nor do we understand God's. And I think that's all the more reason why trust is so vital, both amongst our own relationships with one another, but also when it comes to God. Otherwise, the relationship erodes and sin is always multiplied. Sin is always multiplied. And so when life seems to go wrong, we may be tempted to doubt Jesus. But Hebrews 2, our sermon last week, gave us this wonderful explanation of how Jesus' sovereignty and the reality of suffering in our lives converge. We might expect then, out of that, for Hebrews to say, 
simply, so be comforted. So be comforted. God is sovereign even when you have suffering, so be comforted. But this is, but it says something different. And that's true. We ought to be comforted. It is a comforting truth. But that's not what the book of Hebrews says to these Christians who are tempted to fall back to Judaism, who are tempted to abandon Christ and go back to other things. Rather, Hebrews 3 and 4 become a strong warning to them. Now, we're going to look at this warning in two parts. We'll talk about it today, and then we'll talk about it uh, next Sunday as well. But in our first part today, I'm going to summarize it this way. Jesus is faithful. Beware an unbelieving heart. Jesus is faithful. We need to know that. Therefore, beware of unbelieving hearts. How are we to understand this? Well, first, first let us consider Jesus in verses 1 through 6. Then let us consider God's warning in verses 7 through 19. Finally, let us take care as we apply this passage. So that'll be our structure for this sermon this morning. Consider Jesus. How ought we consider Jesus? Let's look at verses 1 through 6. First, consider Jesus is faithful. Verse 1 starts by calling back to all he has said before. He calls them holy brothers. You remember in the passage beforehand, it talked about the reality that in Christ, because of what Christ has done, he is therefore not ashamed to call you brothers. God's covenant people are set apart by God to be his household. But now, in verses 1 through 6, the writer to the Hebrews decides to mix his metaphors. Now that we say, like, don't mix metaphors, but the Bible apparently has no problem with it. It does it all the time. Uh, so he mixes his metaphors, and he brings in not only the metaphor of a household, but he brings in the metaphor of a house. And, he's, and, and at the very start here, he says, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest. In other words, the messenger of God's revelation and the mediator for us to the Father. He is faithful to the Father who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful to God in what he did. It could be here that Hebrews intends to say that Jesus fulfills both the role of Moses as prophet and messenger of the law, as well as Aaron as high priest, or mediator. And, and he will talk about Aaron here in a little bit, in a, in a couple chapters. But I think that there's a real sense here that Moses, especially prior to the setting up of the tabernacle, not only was the messenger of God to the people, the prophet of God to the people, but also functioned as the priest of God for the people. That oftentimes Moses was the one who was truly mediating between God and the people, even as he went up on Mount Sinai, as he revealed the law, as they sinned, and he went to God and he prayed for them. There, in a lot of ways, Moses acted both as messenger and mediator, and particularly in the time frame of Psalm 95, which will be quoted here in verses 7 through 11. And so a comparison is set up. Jesus is faithful to God who appointed him as heir, just as we all 
agree that Moses was faithful. He's, he's uh, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, look, we, it's just common knowledge. We all agree Moses was faithful. He was faithful to God. And so is Jesus. But then he elevates the argument. He says, consider Jesus, though, is more glorious. They both were faithful, but consider that Jesus was more glorious. He is worthy of more glory, verse 3. They both executed faithfully, but Jesus, as we've seen, is, a vast, is vastly superior in two ways. Two ways that are being described here. He's vast, vastly superior in his being, and he's also superior in his status. Uh, first in his being, the analogy is the difference between the glory of a house and the glory of the one who builds the house, right? It may have been that people used to always build their houses, but today that's kind of rare. M- most of us didn't build the house we live in. Most of us don't go out and go, <laughs> don't go out and go, hey, I think I'll build my own house. It turns out it's a little complicated, right? Okay, <laughs> I'm not going to bring up anyone in particular. Uh, but, um, but you can get on HouseTube, I'll call it HouseTube, you can get on HouseTube where, million, where, where a million people watch someone pour their own basement, right? Someone talks to you, this is how I poured my own basement. And you watch it and you go, whoa, I didn't think a person could do, just go out and do that. Next, the next video, here's how I put up the walls. And you go, whoa, this guy put his own walls up, you know? The creator exceeds the creation. If you build a house and it has walls and it has a roof and it's still standing, I will be impressed with that house, okay? If you build your own house and it stands, I'll be impressed. But I'll be more impressed with you than with the house. Moses was faithful in God's house. He had a role uh, in leading the people, but he was still part of the house. But Jesus, it says, is faithful over God's house. His very essence is creator, not creation, verse 4. And so Jesus is more glorious in his being. Second, he's more glorious in his status. And this is a comparison here between being a son and being a servant. There's a difference between a son and a servant, isn't there? A faithful servant is undoubtedly appreciated. It's deeply loved. Uh, We ought to highly respect and honor that person, but a son is a son. A son is a son. There's a different kind of ownership. There's a different kind of responsibility. There's a different kind of status that goes along with being a son. Moses was a servant, and he ought to be rightly be honored. But Jesus, being the son, is worthy of far more glory. And so the argument progresses. Consider Jesus. He's faithful. Consider Jesus. He's uh, worthy of more glory. Consider Jesus is faithful to all God's house. If we are his house, or rather I should say we are his house, if we hold fast, it says. Our persevering proves we are God's house. And we know that Jesus is faithful over that house. He's faithful. 
And so it tells us to hold fast, to keep a, a tight grip on our confidence, or the word confidence here is, a, is really a public boldness. It's, a, it's the boasting or rejoicing in our hope. This is not a mere uh, identification of oneself as Christian generically or going to, you know, somewhere over here in our room by ourselves. We go, okay, yeah, I'm a Christian, but this is a public boldness. It's a boldness that holds fast to all of the Christian faith, even out there in the face of those who do not. And that's the exact situation that the Hebrews are facing. The context of the passage in the historical context insists that this, is, this, is, uh, this includes both an identifying of oneself with Christ and with His truth and also with His church, with the house, visibly. But perhaps this conditional statement leaves us a little confused. Wait a second. If indeed we hold fast... If, we might begin to ask ourselves some questions. Well, what does that mean? I think there's a few ways that this is, people have tried to interpret uh, this and similar passage, passages that we'll see in Hebrews. One is that some people will say, well, then it must be that people can lose their salvation. They can be truly saved, truly justified before God, and yet if they don't do enough, if they're not strong enough to hold on then they can lose their salvation. Others, not wanting to fall in that trap, rightly recognizing that other passages in Scripture say, no, that can't be the case. Others have said, well, this must then be like a hypothetical warning. It's not, it can't really happen, what it's describing, but it's a hypothetical warning that uh, that, that, that's impossible, it's impossible for someone to really fall away from the covenant community of God, but he does want to challenge them, and so he kind of comes up with this hypothetical warning, and I'm, I'm, I'm not satisfied with either of those solutions. And I think the answer is given by way of explanation in Psalm 95. It is a warning by way of example, the example of the wilderness generation. And in, in, and in this, I want you to consider three aspects Oh, I'm sorry, two aspects of God's warning. First, I want you to consider that God's warning is for us. It's for us. It says, therefore, at the beginning of verse 7, that connects what he's about to say to this statement in verse 6 of holding fast. Second, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and that's important, he doesn't say as David said, he says as the Holy Spirit says. And I think that what he means to communicate here is that the truth that he's about ready to read from Psalm 95 was not only for people uh, at David's time, it was not only for the Jews from David to Jesus, but it is for us now who are in Christ. It is for us now who are part of His house and a part of His church, that house that Jesus is faithful over. You see, the New Testament describes exit, the Exodus as a type of our deliverance in Christ. 
And the wilderness generation is applied as an example to the church today. We can see this in places like 1 Corinthians 10 as well, 1 through 6, as well as Jude 5. And so there's multiple places where the New Testament says, hey, church, you need to consider the wilderness generation. That should be an example to you that, that, that you ought to learn something from. That, that was intended even as an example to you for you to look at and learn something from and then respond accordingly. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says, we've been baptized like those through the, that came through the Red Sea. That we take the Lord's Supper like those who ate the manna and drank from the rock. And it says that rock is Christ. That was, those things were types for Christ. When they drank from that rock, they drank from Christ. When they went through the Red Sea, they were baptized in Christ. When they ate the manna, they were eating Christ in that sense. And yet, some of God's covenant people proved to not have abiding faith. And there seems to be no difference between the old and the new on that point. But, but there are two differences here that I want us to keep in mind. First, first difference that we've already just seen is that we do have a greater messenger and we have a greater mediator in Christ. They were led through the Red Sea by Moses, but we are led by Christ. Second, the stakes then are higher. The stakes are greater. The promise of blessing and, the prom- and, the, and, and of punishment for disbelief are more. You, sitting where you do, 2,000 years after Christ already was risen from the dead, you have greater revelation than they had. You have greater resource than they had. And you'll be held accountable according to that. Second, I want us to consider in God's warning here, consider that God's warning is for unbelief. The issue at hand is unbelief. The issue at hand is not primarily, it's not, it's not uh, 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 at first, at the foremost, the disobedience and rebellion but the, the, the core issue, the fundamental issue, is unbelief, it says. A wicked, unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living God. The source of the issue is an unbelieving heart. And unbelieving here, it comes from the same word as faith or, faith, or, or faithful. So earlier when it says that Moses and Jesus are faithful, it's using the same word as it's used here for unbelieving, just with a negative prefix. So essentially it's saying a not faithful heart, a unfaithful, an unfaith heart that leads us to fall away from the living God. The final result of an unbelieving heart is falling away. God always lives. But even while we live, we can actually be dead. Fall away. Fall away. Uh, In the English here, fall away, I think, 
it comes across too passive in comparison to the Greek word that's behind it. We think of fall away almost like, you know, I was walking along, I was trying to do my best, and I kind of tripped and I fell away. But that's not really the sense of the word here. It's not like, oops, I lost my footing. The word is literally the word that we uh, transliterate apostasy. It's a willful rebellion. That's what it is. It's a willful rebellion. And what it's saying is an unbelieving heart will eventually, given enough time, lead to a willful rebellion to God. And this is applied to us today. Verse 12, it says, we are the brothers. Verse 13, it says, today, today is the today. Throughout this whole section in chapters 3 and 4, essentially what he'll say is, because the psalmist used the word today, then we need to think of today as today. Right? Whatever day, if you have a today, today's the day you need to consider this. Because you won't always have it today. And we're, what we need to do, we are to exhort one another that our hearts won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. What we'll see, well, I'll get to that in a second. Now, we can hear the gospel. We need to understand that we can hear the gospel. We can be set apart to God by baptism. We can be a part of the church. We can take part in the Lord's Supper. We can do all these things. We can even follow Jesus or seemingly follow Jesus for a time. We can do a lot of the things that he tells us to do, and yet we can have an unbelieving heart in it. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, or those who appear to be your brothers and sisters in Christ, who sit across the pew from you, you need to understand that they can be a part of the church. They can come every single Sunday. They can be baptized. They can take the Lord's Supper. They can do things that seem to be, that appear to be obedient, and yet they can have an unbelieving heart still. And friends, you know that. Because if you've lived in the church long enough, then you have some friend. Someone you knew who for a time was following Christ or seemed to be, in some sense was, and yet now is not at all. Listen, we can't see that a heart is unbelieving. You and I can't see that a heart lacks faith. We do not have that ability in the same way that we don't know God's secret eternal decrees. We don't know the secret things. We only know what he reveals. So, too, we don't, we can't know people's hearts like God can know their hearts. But we can see the unfaithful actions of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can see unfaithful lives, and disobedient and sinful actions of others in God's house. We can see grumbling and complaining, just like the wilderness generation grumbled and complained first before they ever arrived at the edge of the promised land. They ought to have already known when they stood at the Red Sea that there was a problem. Yet all of us grumble sometimes, right? 
And all of us sin sometimes. But since we can't see the heart and separate out those who maybe are, uh, have a believing heart and yet they've fallen into sin, and those who have unbelieving hearts and, and that, that sin, and that grumbling and complaining will result in sin, will result then in further hardening of the heart and further deceit, deceitfulness of sin, and then eventually full, full rebellion, apostasy. We can't see that. And so the command is to insert ourselves right there where we can see and exhort one another. Exhort one another. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because, because friends, listen, if that person is a believer, if they have a believing heart, then they will repent and you have saved them from their sin. But if they don't have a believing heart and you insert yourself there, you may be heading off the hardening of that heart and giving them an opportunity to actually turn to Christ for real in faith. Listen, we rightly want to clarify that we are saved by works, or saved by faith and not works. <laughs> there we go. Get that one right. Let me say that again. We rightly want to clarify that we are saved by faith and not works. But in doing that, we accidentally pit faith and works against one another in a way that I don't think that the Bible does. Our faith and faithful actions are not pitted against one another in Scripture. In fact, the words faith and faithful translated are the exact same word in the original language. And it's the context that determines which, which way it's translated into English. Our faith doesn't operate in isolation from our actions. So long as you are breathing, so long as you have a today, everything you do comes from a heart that either trusts Jesus or trusts something else. Everything you do will show forth either faith in Christ or faith in something else, either faith in Christ or fear of all the other things instead. When they stood at the edge of the promised land and, they, and, and everyone, all 12 spies agreed, there are giants in that land. They are massive. They are way bigger than us. But also God's word is true. That land flows with milk and honey. At that moment, their actions, what they decided, they, they revealed what they really believed in. Did, did they believe, did they have faith in God, that God was bigger than those giants? Or did they have fear of those people more? And their actions revealed whether their heart was believing or unbelieving. We can't pretend... We can't pretend that we can isolate faith from works in that way. Faith from action. Faith from being faithful. At the same time, we need to understand that we're not saved by what we do. That we're saved by faith, and that faith is a gift from God. 
So the point I'm, I'm, I'm trying to draw our attention to, the point of, of drawing our attention, rather, to rebellion and disobedience is not to tell us that our actions earn us salvation or lose us salvation, but to reveal that our external response to Christ's covenant and His promises can reveal our internal rebellion to Him. It can reveal unbelieving hearts, which result in rebellious lives and actions, and which will not enter His rest. And so while we have today, let's do something about it. Now, someone might agree with all of this, and, or they might agree, well, yes, people come to, and they're members of a church, but, but if they aren't justified by Christ, then, then they're not really part of God's covenant or God's covenant people in any objective way before God. And yet, it says here that we have come to share in Christ. We have become sharers in Christ. We could translate it this way. We have become sharers in Christ. And share in is the same, it's the same word that's used in 3.1, that you share in a heavenly calling. And, and, and it means that, that there's some sort of relationship with, and in this case, it's a relationship with Christ in some way. Now, now here's where it's difficult. In our common, common vernacular, we, we use the, term, the phrase relationship with Christ as a synonym for salvation, right? If you have a relationship with Christ, we, we use that as a synonym for you're saved. But that's not really how it's being used here. It only means that you do have a real objective relationship with Christ and with His house in some sense. You really are covenanted to this thing. You really are part of His house and His church. Chapter 3, verse 6, just as that generation was really part of God's people. They really did have a corporate connection, a corporate relationship with God as God led them out of Egypt. And yet, that real external connection did not necessarily guarantee the internal faith, a believing heart. But that is a gift from God. And that, if there is not that faith, it resulted in persisting becoming rebellious. That that internal faith that is a gift of God will persist to the end faithfully. So saying that someone is not, you know, that that person that falls away was not really part of the church in any objective way doesn't actually do anything for God, nor does it, it, does it do any help to the apostate person. Really, in my opinion, only undercuts the blessing and privilege of being a part of God's church. It actually, for us who are part of God's church, just undercuts the substance and and promise, the 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 gravity, if you will, of being a part of God's covenant community. The comparison seems clear. Just as these were part of God's people and they fell in the wilderness, so that should be an example to the God's covenant people today. That ought to be 
a a gravitas to us. That if we have a believing heart and if we live faithfully, God delivers on his promises and we will enter his rest. But, But we have to remember the other hand. That if we are unfaithful, that may be revealing an unbelieving heart in us or in our brother and sister across the pew. And we ought to take that with all the gravity that it bears and respond by exhorting them. Why must we exhort one another when we see sin? Because the Bible says that may save them. That may be the actual thing that God wants to use to bring them to faith in Christ if they don't actually have a believing heart. And so it is no mercy and no grace if we ignore the sin and disobedience in the lives of those who are in God's church. Whether they're sitting right here in the pew or whether they're the Christian friend that you have from when you grew up or whether they're the Christian friend that you have at work or wherever else. It is no mercy and grace to turn a blind eye to sin and rebellion in the lives of other believers, other professing Christians. This is reiterated by a series of rhetorical questions in verses 16 and 18, which, which they, follow, they follow this covenantal pattern, this pattern of God speaking and setting us apart and then God relating to us and then, and then us responding, our response of faith that's met with God's blessing or our response of unfaith, which is met with God's curses. Here's how 16 to 18 go. Who heard and rebelled? Well, it was all who left Egypt, who were set apart by God, and they followed Moses. Who provoked God? What was the generation who complained and sinned against Him? Who was not allowed to enter the promised land? It was those who were disobedient. Well, you could say, who heard and rebelled? It was all those who called themselves Christians and were baptized, set apart by God as part of His church, and who, who maybe for a time looked like they, who said they, they were following Christ. And who provoked God? Well, it was those in the church who complained and grumbled against Him and sinned instead. And who was it that wasn't allowed to enter the promised land? Well, it was those disobedient ones. But lest we think that it is because of their disobedient actions, lest we think that, that, it, that the crux of the issue is, well, they just didn't do enough good things to get themselves into the promised land. That is not the crux of the issue. Verse 19 tells us what is. They were unable to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. It was not the disobedient actions, but it was the unbelief that was the problem. Listen, friends, you, we are all disobedient at some point. What a, wonderful, what a wonderful truth here, that God is just against those who do not have faith in Him, that He's just against those who are disobedient, and yet even us who, who do have faith in Him, though we are disobedient at times, that is not going to keep us out of the promised land. If we have faith, that is the key issue. 
Hebrews here is bringing together a hidden reality that only God knows, the heart, and a visible reality that we can see. It is using that generation as an example for us today in the church. Salvation is a matter of faith. We need to know that unbelief is the heart of the matter. Believing hearts can make mistakes in actions. Unbelieving hearts can pretend the right actions. So it's critical that we understand it is faith and not merely works. But we can't see and examine hearts. So how can we examine ourselves or help others? Well, we can see actions. And whatever our hearts believe will eventually be fleshed out in our actions, right? Actions are indicators, albeit imperfect ones, of hearts. So what then should we do? We should take care. What should we do to take care of ourselves and to encourage others? Well, I want to give you two two things. Take care. Take care to look to Jesus. If it's about having a believing heart and not about our works primarily, if that's not the core of the issue, then we need to look to Christ. We need to look to Jesus. It is true that our outward actions can testify to an inner reality, and that can give us assurance that we have faith in Christ. The Bible does say that. But this is not looking at our actions as a means or a merit for salvation, but as evidence of Christ's work in us and in others. This has, this especially has limitations in regard to examining others because we, we, we don't always see things exactly accurately. We can't see into someone's heart, right? And so it has limitations in this, you know, we can't, we can't look at someone and, and they do one sin and we go like, oh, they must not be a believer, right? We need to be more careful in our analysis in that. But our job, our job is not to try to determine who is or who isn't actually in God's house. There's only very specific and clear situations where the rebellion has become so evident, as it was for this generation, that we ought to do that. But since we can't know perfectly, that doesn't mean we don't do anything. We are to look to Christ in faith. We are to encourage faith and obedience to Christ in all of God's church. Listen, we don't have to know hearts since it's no benefit to us to sit back and ask, yeah, but but are they really? Are they really, you know, we, it's no benefit to us to, to see someone's actions sit back and go, what? but are, you know, let me try to dis- decipher where their heart is. Decipher if it's believing or unbelieving so I know how to act now. No, God says, no, you respond according to their actions. If they've sinned, confront them, exhort them to act in faithfulness. If, if they're living out faithfully. You don't have to try to figure out where their heart is. Just continue to encourage them to look to Christ in faith. That's our job in this situation. And if a person does not actually have faith, although they claim to be a Christian, and we encourage them to faith in Jesus, then we're actually encouraging them to the solution to their problem, even if we don't know that that's their problem, right? And if they do have faith, 
Perhaps they've just sinned. If they do have faith, then we're encouraging them to flee that sin and hold fast to Christ, which is exactly what we're called to do. And so in, re- in reality, the, the thing that we're supposed to do is exactly the same. Just, just like our question, our catechism question, the thing that we're supposed to do is exactly the same. Just obey God's expressed will. You don't need to know His secret will. You don't need to know it. And if you try to know it, if you're trying to figure that out, then actually what that's representing is a lack of faith in your own heart, that He takes care of that part. The one who is over the house, that's his job. You're not over the house. You're in the house. Our focus then is not on trusting my faithfulness, but trusting Jesus' faithfulness. Nevertheless, our faithfulness is not irrelevant, right? Wherever the Bible talks about God's sovereignty or talks about Jesus' faithfulness, it is always followed with action and not apathy. And so the second part of this is this, the second kind of application is this, take care to remain with Jesus' house, with Jesus' church. Take care to remain a part of that. See, the earthly, or the, the critical earthly support of Christians exhorting one another is from God's church, right? I, I like to think that Joshua and Caleb, if they didn't, if, if they had been, if either Joshua or Caleb had been unbelieving instead, I like to think that the other one still would have held fast and said, no, let's go. But I tell you what, it probably was a huge comfort to both of them to have each other, Right? When you, when you got the 10 people against you, to have that one person who's standing, you know, with you, man, I tell you, that must have been a real encouragement. And God gives us that in his people. We need one another's encouragement. We need one another to challenge us in this way. And yet, and yet I think we can make a few mistakes here. We can make a few errors that we have to, to, to really avoid. The first error is this. The first error is seeing someone who identifies as a Christian but isn't living it out and thinking to ourselves, eh, they're probably not really a Christian, and then just leaving it at that. We do this, right? Well, they're probably not really a Christian, and we just kind of leave it at that. The second error is to see that, that same person and think, they're baptized, they profess faith, so even though they're living in sin, they're probably fine. Both of those are errors we can make. And in both examples, we ought to be showing others what God's Word says. We ought to be exhorting them to faith and faithfulness. We ought to be graciously encouraging them to trust Christ and stop sinning. We ought to take the warning here seriously. There's another error that happens here that it's a little bit trickier. There it's the person who identifies as a Christian, and maybe they don't have any obvious, like, sin, any obvious, like, consistent rebellion going on in their life. We can't see anything that tells us, like, they're, you know, way out there rebelling, except they choose to not identify with the church, except they choose not to identify with the church. And we think to ourselves, eh, that's probably not the best it's probably not best that that's the case for them. But they profess Jesus, 
And I don't see any clear, like, I don't see any other sin in their life that, that is, you know, really obvious. They're not out there going and partying. They're not out, you know, uh, being unfaithful to their spouse. They're not, they're not you know, they, they keep a tight rein on their tongue. They're, like, there's nothing, like, clear and apparent that's going on. So I guess they must be fine. Friends, could you imagine someone who's part of this wilderness generation, who's part of God's people who were led out of Egypt, and you said, eh, I'll find my way to the promised land by myself, see you later, and just started traveling on their own. I'll take my family and I'll just do this my way. What would we think of that? we would be afraid for where they stood with Christ. That's what we would think. We would be fearful of what might happen to them. A refusal to faithfully commit to and gather with God's people is not ultimately a lack of faith in other Christians. Listen, people who refuse to be a part of, his, of God's visible church, I am I am sure that most of them have had situations where Christians have broken their trust, and now it's difficult to trust any church. I get that. But a refusal to faithfully commit to and gather with God's people is not ultimately a lack of faith in other Christians. It reveals a lack of faith in Christ, whom God says is over that house. We ought to be afraid for whether they have a believing heart or not. If they can't believe God to be a part of his church, flawed as it is, the church that God says Jesus is faithful over, we ought to be concerned for whether they actually believe in Jesus, even if all their actions say something else. It's a lack of faith in God's word that it really is better for me to be in a church even with flawed Christians as they are, that it really is better for me to be committed to other believers, to be under elders, to hear the preaching of God's word, to gather and worship with other people. It really is better even with all the other problems because God said it is and he's faithful over his house and he's purifying his bride and I get to be a part of that. I don't, I, don't, I don't say this to be critical of anyone. You're all here. <laughs> You're here. I say this to us as, as people who love the Lord and love other people. God tells us how to care for them. And it is exhorting them, as Hebrews will say later on, it is exhorting them to not give up meeting together. And all the more as the day draws near. So consider, consider again God's people at the Red Sea. They weren't there accidentally. God took them there intentionally. If you look earlier in the story, 
They're there precisely because if they had went a different way, they still wouldn't have trusted God, but they would have been able to go back to Egypt. And so God says, no, I'm going to intentionally put them in a place where they can't do anything but wait for me to act. God graciously takes them by the Red Sea so that they can neither go back nor forward unless God does something. It forces them into a situation where they can't actually act on their unfaithful hearts because God knows their hearts are unfaithful. And he goes, I'm going to show them again that I'm a good God. I'm going to show them again that I'm a faithful God. I'm going to show them again all of my wonders. I'm going to part this sea and I'm going to destroy this army. God puts us in difficult situations not for us to run away in unbelief, but for us to learn to trust His faithfulness. Next week, we're going to continue Hebrews' explanation of Psalm 95 and see how it calls us to be to, to, to faithful and, and faith-filled actions. But for this morning, I want to leave it here. I, w- I want to remind us of this. Church, you can trust that this same God is faithful. You can trust that this same God is faithful, that Jesus is as faithful as Moses and yet is even more glorious and worthy of more honor. And therefore, let us beware of unbelieving hearts. Let's pray. Lord,